Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 258, Thursday, September the 8th, 2022. Welcome. Welcome to all our listeners, welcome to all our subscribers and welcome to people who just happen to click on the podcast for no reason at all. It'd be good if you became a subscriber, but we won't, we'll forgive you if you don't. So, how are you, Mark? I was good. That intro, Mr. Intro Man, just uh, he went for the longest time in the 258 episodes that we've done, I believe, then, Brendan. I'm great. Excellent. Well, I'm not too bad myself as well. Working, working, working as usual, Mark, but work hard, play hard. I must tell you about something that we did on the weekend, and my staff will no doubt remember this. We had a bit of a little bit of a what do they call it, Mark? A, a disaster? A disaster? <laughs> no, a bonding session, yes. No, we had dinner um, at a – and I like your opinion on this. We had dinner and then the event afterwards, which we'll briefly talk about if I don't ramble on too long, at a vegetarian restaurant that – a Chinese vegetarian restaurant that everything obviously is vegetarian, but they're all the mock – Meat dishes, Mark. So it was excellent. The actual food was excellent. It tasted fantastic. But, you know, I'm a bit, I think you might be a bit ambivalent about the whole, you know, should we, um, should you eat just the pretend mock meats or not, or just have the veggies as they are? So examples were there was lemon chicken, um, the fried sort of lemon chicken type, um, um, in the lemon sauce, there was a, a sizzling beef with black bean sauce. There was fried rice. There was another um, a, a satay chicken skewers, Mark. Um, pork dumplings, and these are all obviously veg- vegetarian. Um, and but they were they were it was very good food. Even the ones that were not mock meat that were just. Veggie dishes were, were, you know, very good. So it was a very good restaurant anyway. But what's your thoughts on all of that, Mark? Look, I I don't need mock meats. I'm perfectly happy to eat the vegetables. But if if mock meats get a few people to try, um, you know, because they're familiar with a dish and they might want to have that dish and that introduces them to the concept of that dish without actual meat... Um, if that's a gateway, if it's a gateway drug, Brendan, um, if that opens the door for them, I'm perfectly happy for that. And I think um, on a broader scale, while I have no trouble, you know, I'm fine with it at your restaurant, um, uh, on a broad scale, I think it's good for the planet. I think we'll end up, I just don't think we can sustain the level of meat production that we currently enjoy. Uh, and I think at some point uh, the, the, the true cost of uh, meat will be given to the consumer and a lot of us will um, just economically be driven to not nearly not eat nearly as much meat um, and our protein sources will be you know uh, lab meat or insects or non-traditional sources of protein or that um, soylent green mark 
Silent S- Green, indeed. That's the old um, science fiction film. <laughs> and our listeners can look that one up. So logical as ever, Mark. I think what I will do, when you head down to Melbourne again, which I think you are soon, yes. you might book that restaurant. How does that sound? I look forward to it immensely. And then you will complain further, I am sure. <laughs> so, yeah. So what that's happened what after? We, well, well do you, before you tell us what happened after, tell yes. us, we've got to mention the Etsy store. Yes, that's right. Well, we've got to mention something. Um, vetgurus.com, <laughs> the place to go. Look at our previous episodes, the 257 previous ones, and then this one, 258. Think about becoming a patron of the Vet Gurus. I don't, you could put that on a business card, couldn't you? Patron of Vet Gurus and be proud of the fact that you're a patron. Or a T-shirt. If, if not, <laughs> head you to get our from e- the Etsy store. Etsy store, exactly, and uh, buy a buy a mug or a T-shirt. Or um, And we did see a T-shirt in, um, where was it, Mark? Did you see that picture that was sent from our good friend? In in Canada somewhere? Yes. Uh, 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 no, and I had And it had the vet, um, it was a picture of the Vet Gurus T-shirt um, overlooking a glacier or amazing lake and yeah so the vet gurus are getting around mark um that was from doug our friend um i'll send you the picture if he did not send it to you um you probably did but you have so many yes you you you, you're such a internet troll that you um you you lose track of what you've received and what you've sent so yes go to our etsy store if you can't find it just head to our website vetgurus.com and there will be a link there and a little bit of the proceeds for any of the merchandise a very little amount actually mark doesn't it goes towards uh, our production costs and the rest just goes to the printing of the t-shirt and posting it to you and etsy take the rest i think so (laughs) but we'd like you to go there and um yeah it's always good to have a bit of um, promotion for the website and to help the podcast continue yes so we went to dinner mark and it was a very successful dinner i think everybody liked that dinner as we just spoke about and then we kicked off to some karaoke mark <laughs> oh my goodness um it was probably wasn't my first choice but we had a good good time a bit of a long story of that but i won't go into that um why we chose karaoke one of our staff members was particularly interested and had a bit of a a um, background in being a bit of a karaoke master so we we booked a room at a, a karaoke s- shop or whatever you call them um a, a little um, bar a karaoke bar, karaoke bar. bar actually it was because part of the you pay for the room and they give you x dollars worth of um alcohol um per person as part of the booking which, <laughs> which facilitates make, this makes thing. yeah makes a lot of sense so yes so a good time was had by all and i must admit that um the last four or five songs were taken over by yours truly very poorly sung out of tune um a few duets with um john our other vet and uh yeah we all went home with um, tell, tell us scratchy the, voices mark um the, and, the name of the, the one of the songs Oh, well, just so we can visualise your just classics. Just so you could imagine what I'd choose, the old dad sort of ones and that. So in, um, we did a duet with Piano Man. Oh. Um, we did, uh, what else did we do? Love Shack. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got everybody up and we did uh, We Are The Champions <laughs> from, from Queen. Um, so we, we had a good time at... Yeah, even the even the staff that were a little bit reluctant. Perhaps it was the alcohol that was fueling <laughs> it, Mark. Um, 
man- managed to um, sing a sing a tune or two. Maybe not in tune, but sing a tune or two. So no, we had a good time. So, so, something a bit different, and uh, I think it ended up working out well. Yeah, it could have been a disaster, but it was a good night. So yeah, so that's what we did on the weekend, Mark. But uh, I'll take you to that restaurant uh, um, you never know you might kick on to the karaoke yes. afterwards because that wasn't that was around the corner from there so look out better um tune up your tonsils mark um for that so yes so there we go that's so, it now you've got a review too oh, i do have a review this might may be a long episode mark so <laughs> i'll try and make this review short but it probably won't be um because it was something quite interesting it was a book mark uh, and obviously it's one you've probably heard before, The Black Prince and the Sea Devils, the story of Valerio Borghese and the elite units of the Decima Mass. Um, so what the hell is this about? Well, it's sort of in two parts, and the reason why I, I and, well, I sort of came across it, across it was, uh, was a bit obtuse, but um, we won't go into that story because that'll last another 10 minutes. But it's in two parts. It's about... Prince Junio Valerio Borghese, an Italian nobleman during and just before and after for a couple of decades, World War II, Mark. And he was a, basically the first modern naval commando squad that he um, developed. And it was just fascinating what they did. And it was, it's basically before all the, you know, not that I'm into death and war, but it was before all the teams like the US Navy SEALs um, used sort of their some of their techniques and that they were the basic basically the first commando type unit. So what they had, just briefly, is three sort of ways of attacking um, ships that were in a harbour. Um, the most fascinating one which the most of the book half of the book talks about is these miniature submarines. So they'd head underwater in a normal submarine with these mini submarines bolted to the top of the submarine and they were a two-person submarine and they'd unbolt the little subs these mini subs while they're underwater near the harbour and put on their little breathing apparatus and that was another interesting thing this was during the time before you know the scuba gear wasn't yeah. developed properly and it was a two-person and the way the way they looked they looked like just straddling a torpedo basically they just literally had their feet because they're literally only one meter wide and and the two you know the two two person um one behind the other and they would head off underwater um, no radar or anything like that in the, those days and they try and head into the harbor and the th- probably the 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 front quarter of the little underwater submarine was detachable and that was the the um the bomb um so they would pop up every now and again they didn't they weren't enclosed um, they just had a little shield a little face shield like a motorbike you know they just had a little shield there and they'd be yeah. under the water and then they'd find the ship and they'd um go beneath the keel of the ship and attach a little steel cable on one side string it to the other side un- from under the ship and then hang the bomb in the middle <laughs> under there and then try and head off um, and then they'd sink their little mini sub because nobody had sort of used them before and they didn't want them found by the allies 
and they were quite successful um, in the Mediterranean it was basically and the other fascinating thing with it was I learned a lot about the Mediterranean and all the all the places there as well it was quite interesting so that he, he he basically developed these midget submarines um, and they had two other methods of trying to destroy the, the boats in the harbors one was speed boats you know just like the speed boats you'd go skiing with um, really fast you know surface boats and they'd have a torpedo in them and they'd get to 100 metres or so of a big battleship and just bail out, just jump out. <laughs> um, and and what, one version of them had a big rope on it that they then pulled to sort of activate the you know, timer for the, for the, for the, um, for the um, torpedo. And the third way, which was even more bizarre, and uh, it, it did work a couple of times, was what they called gamma men. And that was they would use their breathing apparatus, they get be dropped off by the submarine near a near a harbour where the where the ships were docked, the battleships, and they'd carry two or more twenty kilogram mines, uh, one in each hand, and they'd go to the sink to the bottom of the harbour and they would walk along the harbour bottom um, into the harbour and then try and find the ships to lay the mines on. So it was really bizarre. So that was half of the story um, about how they developed these sort of destructive little midget submarines um, with these um, underwater things and everything that went wrong and that with it. And um, and the second half was about the prince um, himself after the Italians, you know, capitulated um, during, at the end of World War Two, and he became a, a, a fascist um, sort of underground commando leader after the war, and he was involved with a whole lot of right wing wow. conspiracies and abort and, and an abortive coup, trying to take over Italy, um, and because they didn't want. Um, Russia invading um, the, the the communists invading Italy, so um, he had a big following as a as a fascist um, leader. After that, and he died in I think nineteen seventy four or so, which under suspicious circumstances. But so the second half of the book just goes into all the politics about Italy and all these things I didn't know about the whole um, you know changes of government and that from World War Two onwards. So it was it was fascinating, um, and the, and and some hell, and it was written. The book was co-written by a, an Italian author as well as a, I think a US author and some very funny lines in there. And I'll just read out one line, Mark. They were talking about that Italian, you know, my, um, my wife's family is Italian and I dearly love the Italians, but um, they um, uh, had to be trying really secret with developing these little midget submarines, but they struggled a lot to do it. And um, Borghese wrote um, at one stage that he said it was easier to get an Italian to lay down his life than to make the sacrifice of holding his tongue, Mark. <laughs> so, because they like to talk. And um, another quote was the chief of the secret navy, the, the Italian Navy Secret Service said, in spite of the fact that Italians generally talk too much, they therefore make poor spies. So, <laughs> that was quite <laughs> funny as well. So, that's the book, Mark. So, not something that you'd probably be picking off the um, the shelf. Um, it does come in a Kindle version. I'll link to it as well. But I just found it fascinating, something that I'd never known about, both the, these weird sort of sub submarines and also, also the development of the underwater breathing apparatus, Mark, and the different variations they did on that was, was amazing, the way they sort of um, slowly um, progressed and developed them. And then the whole... Um, 
politics after that. So there you go, the Black Prince and the Sea Devils, and it's a, a very strong 8.6 out of 10, Mark. So, yeah, excellent we'll have a review, look to it. Brendan. Excellent review. So I think with that, we've got to jump into we've got to, we do have a couple of news stories, don't we? So um, do you want to take the first I one? I will. I will take the first one is a quick one. Um, it's an assertion that dogs cry happy tears when their owners come home. A uh, recent uh, report in current biology, in the journal Current Biology, found that dogs uh, shed tears in happy situations. Um, researchers haven't yet uh, yelled at the dogs or um, uh, told them, um, you know, called them names to see if they're going to cry when they're faced with negative emotions. Probably a good thing. But lead author, Professor Takafumi Kikusui, um, was inspired to conduct the study when his poodle had puppies six, uh, puppies six years ago and he noticed the poodle had tears in her eyes after giving birth. He thought that the uh, oxytocin associated with uh, uh, parturition might trigger the flow of tears and uh, he added that um, it's not usual for dogs' tears to you know fall from the eyes the same way humans do but um, they did look into the amount of tear production and they could correlate it. The researchers at Azabu University in Japan um, uh, could correlate the production of tears with the uh, with their presumption of um, of the levels of oxytocin. And they even went so far as to um, medically give the dogs oxytocin and they did find that that caused them to uh, have their eyes fill up with additional tears. I don't know that it's enough to uh, provide a treatment for um, dry eye, keratoconjunctivitis conjunctivitisica. <laughs> I think owners of dogs that have that certainly should uh, be trying to make their dogs happy, but I don't think it's going to be enough to, to correct the problem. Uh, but so, it, it's so nice. Mate. It's a nice thing to hear that, um, that oxytocin uh, uh, the hormone oxytocin has this effect beyond our species, Brendan. So you make them happy and you put a few drops of oxytocin in their conjunctival sacs and um, <laughs> bingo, you don't need to use um, Optimune anymore, Mark, um, for those dry cases. <laughs> yeah, a, interesting little story, Mark. Um, I think the jury's still out about whether whether they're getting particularly they're emotional. actually happy. Mark. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, my news story, Mark, is, is a bit of a depressing one because I, I was defending this person for, for many years when I gave lectures at university regarding this subject, Mark, and it is how 24 English rabbits took over Australia and DNA has confirmed that the wild rabbits that were well, originally brought over from England, let loose in Western Victoria, not far from Melbourne here, um, triggered the wild rabbit population here. And everybody used to blame Robert Austin, Mark, for the, or Thomas Austin, sorry, for bringing these rabbits and saying that Thomas Austin is the person who introduced rabbits to Australia and it's all his fault. And I did used to defend him and say, look, it's there would have been lots of rabbits brought over with the initial fleets that came to Australia. Um, but he did particularly in, in, import 24 wild, wild rabbits that were 
registered um, on his on his log there um, to be used for hunting on his estate in in western uh, west of Melbourne, Mark. And DNA has confirmed that most of the wild rabbits, Mark, were from those twenty four. So he is he is humorous, despite humorous introductions <laughs> across Australia. It was the single batch yes, of English yes. rabbits that Thomas released on his property. That and they this do. They do think that invasion. one of the theories is that they um, scrolling down here that they think it was those particular rabbits uh, were weren't tame ones. That his ones were described as wild caught, and they better adapted to local conditions. Uh, so they're thinking that they had a bit of a genetic advantage advantage when they were originally released. And you know, you you've certainly seen, and I have the the destruction that when they were at the peak, wild rabbits in Australia, and they were. You know, they had a bounty, I think, of one one dollar or one pound or something, didn't they, on each rabbit? And there was, or probably less than that, um, and there was millions of them, wasn't there? Or something crazy like a couple of billion rabbits, um, wild rabbits in Australia, being a non-native species, and we still spend up to at least $200 million a year trying to control them, probably a lot more than that, so... Yeah, although we did do good things, Mark. I mean, the Austin Hospital that you will <laughs> you know still of stick um, up for him. <laughs> in um, in Melbourne here in Heidelberg, which I I I um, I spent some I spent an overnight stay there, Mark, um, after heading there in an ambulance. So you'll well remember one day. Yes, I do. don't remember, but you'll remember. <laughs> um, so and they looked after me very well. Uh, so. Yeah, fascinating story, but yes, um, 24 rabbits, Mark. Um, they bred like rabbits, and, and we ended up with a couple of billion of them, So, and now we can't get rid of them at all. It was a good idea at the time, he thought, you know, let's just have a few rabbits and we can, you know, release and it is, them around it, the farm. I, it definitely is, like I, like you, think that um, you've got to understand people's place in time and you can't always judge them by our standards today um you know they don't have the benefit of our education and our perspective um geez it still doesn't stop me wishing thomas austin had lost his 24 rabbits in on the trip over yeah Just wish it didn't happen so there you None go nonetheless not, not particularly good news story but well the only other thing i'd like to mention related to that and funnily enough Annie and I were having a chat about this today for some strange reason, and, and it wasn't relating to this story at all. I remember when I was young, mum used to cook up the odd rabbit, and I think it was one of those dishes that was pretty cheap in the day, Mark, when, when I was young um, and living at home as a child uh, because we weren't particularly um, wealthy. and In fact, we weren't wealthy at all. <laughs> and, and it was one of those um, feeds, and I asked her, and he said, oh, did you end up getting being fed rabbit? And she said, yes, we did, um, but she never ate it. She always refused to eat it, um, the rabbit. Did you ever have rabbit, Mark? I did not. I did not. But um, I was just talking I was talking to you off air about um, my cousin, Merrin from Grafton, and we are just at her property, and, um, and she does... Uh, occasionally she's got some friends in Grafton who she when the rabbits get too numerous on her property she catches a few up in uh, uh, traps not unlike cat traps and um, and uh, yeah there's a few rabbit stews going on in in amongst her friends in Grafton so it still happens Brendan still happens yes 
Well, that leads us no, to our main topic. There's no real um, segue there. Segue, isn't no, there? I, I tried <laughs> to search for one, but it just didn't come up. Yes. Didn't, so didn't our main topic me. is something we've sort of touched on last week, I think, and that is alluded to working as a locum. So I think you've you've done all the research for this one. I sent you my <laughs> list um, with the agenda via email, didn't I, Mark? And it wasn't, wasn't a particularly extensive list, so I think we'll go with your list as far as things to chat about. So what's number one? I think you've said there's a top ten, Mark. Nine. Top, top nine. Top nine. I've got nine. Nine things nine. And, a, and a bit of a, a reference at the end, um, um, probably a... Uh, location for a checklist. So um, the number nine tip for people who, and it, it is, uh, you know, with our current veterinary workplace environment, the current ecology of the veterinary workplace, there is um, an increased number of people electing to do locums and they're increasingly important for those of us who don't have, you know, who have a full-time job or a part-time job, um, those breaks are going to become increasingly important and and locums are an excellent way to provide them. So my first tip, the number nine tip for locums, is um, you have a unique perspective as a locum looking at several different practices and I think it's an excellent uh, starting point to not gossip, to not talk about different practices, not uh, talk about um, you know this happening at one practice or this happening with one vet. Um, the unique perspective that's afforded a locum should be uh, celebrated by not talking about the the differences, avoid uh, politics, and that extends to within practices. You don't know all the people that work there very well. You don't. You'll get on with some. You'll get on not so well with others. Um, just don't. Your life will be better if you don't enter into those petty, he said, she said, gossip. Just stay Great aloof. tip, Mark. Great tip. Gee, I can't wait for the other eight. And regarding that particular tip, yes, especially for those who want to do more than one locum. So <laughs> and at one stage, I, I think I've worked at 30 plus, I counted it at one stage, well over 30 vet clinics in Melbourne region, Mark, when I was doing lots of locum so, and part-time work. And yeah, the last thing you want to do is, is bag off another clinic because word will get around and nobody wants you to have, have, be there as a locum. Um, so that's point number one, which emphasises what you were saying. And the second part or second point is you often do get dumped with all the trash and all the um, all the angst of um, from staff because you're the locum there and, and the nurses and the vets that work there will say, oh, Mark, Mark, and what do you think about this? This nurse has been shocking and uh, this vet's been a bit of a bugger and blah, blah, blah. So you, you end up being the sounding board because they see you as somebody new and somebody um, that they can just vent um, too. So I think um, that, that that really sort of um, hammers at well, home that, that you will get hit with all of that sort of stuff and I think you just got to sort of smile and just listen. It's a bit like dealing with that angry client, I think, isn't it, Mark? Just listen and let them vent and, and but don't, don't make any real opinion one way or the other. Don't take sides. Well, it leads me to my um, number eight, my second tip, um, and that is to set limits and learn to say no. You don't, you know, whether it's 
um, someone phoning you up, uh, you know, you've got a couple of locums lined up and you've got uh, some personal time between, um, and someone calls up and wants to use that time, they need a break, you've got to look after yourself and learn to say no. Uh, as veterinarians, we're very good at trying to please every single person, every client, every worker, every employee. Our habits are to not say no and to say yes to everything but I think as a locum it's one of the things set the limit how much work I'm going to do who I'm going to work for um, when I'm not going to work and learn to say no and part of that limit setting is just as you said Brendan uh, when people start to have a little chat about because you are seen as an objective uh, independent voice and some people might uh, take to you with uh, oh this happens here it doesn't happen anywhere else does it You've got to be a little bit aloof and say, not my place to comment on that. I'm here just to uh, do the work um, and set those limits early and prevent those things getting out of control. Well, another great tip, Mark. And my comments on that tip are, you want to especially, gee, the first bit of it is making sure that you you, those days off, you will. If you mention to them that you have a day off, you'll get the calls. Oh, can you just do one more day? Oh, you've got a day off, you know, and you end up yeah running yourself into ground into the ground as you mentioned. So yeah, set those limits, and and you could always say to to the clinic you're only working part time or doing a short locum that no one booked for the next week or or every Wednesday or whatever, and then that way it gets them off your back and it's a bit of a white lie, I suppose, doing it that way. But that's that's one way of doing it there. Um, but also with and and you might have this as one of the seven seven that are left mark saying no to and this is a really tricky one. As a locum and you can cover it later if it is in your list there, mate. Um, no, no, I'm happy to say, jump around, but I think saying, you're going to... No, saying no to a procedure or a um, a method or, or, a, or a protocol um, that, that you just are not comfortable about. Um, and that's a tricky one, especially for young young vets who, who may not have the experience or at least the, the, the strength of will to, to be able to say, no, nah, what they're doing there is wrong and I'm not going to follow that. Know, using ether as the anesthetic in this practice, <laughs> it is no good anymore. And I'm going to use something called halothane instead um, because it's a, a modern anesthetic gas. It's you, you, you're so you're setting those limits and saying, okay, these are um, um, my ethics and this is what I can do, um, but not necessarily getting all judgmental about what's happening in that practice because you don't know the history you don't know the clients you can say i'm not doing it but um just you know schedule it the week after when you're not there and the the normal team is back um but um but certainly um don't feel pushed into doing things and that might even just be a surgical procedure that you're not familiar with particularly an elective one um and these days if it's not an elective one, um, there are referral services. So don't feel yep. pushed into doing something yep. that you're not comfortable doing. And the way I always view that, Mark, is, you know, think the worst case scenario, if it's sort of elective procedure or, or doing uh, a treatment on an animal that you're not familiar with, 
what happens if that animal dies? You know, you're, you're the one who will have to explain to the client that you know came in for a for a nail clip and it's going home in a body bag, yeah, and yeah. and you're the one that will be taken to the vet board, not the clinic, um, because you're the veterinarian who treated the animal. So you know, I mean, we're a bit doom and gloom, but there's going to be some positive things. I, I hope, Mark, as we go down <laughs> this list. What's the next? Well, my one? next one. Um, sort of leads on from that. And uh, in terms of setting limits, I like to get everything in writing. Now, you know, Brendan, you know me so well. I'm such a handshake guy. That'll be good enough. We shake on it, and that's good enough. But I don't think that's good enough. I think that um, getting things in writing, including the the expected hours, the expected wages, the circumstances of pay, what will happen with overtime, all that stuff, the dates, making sure the dates are written down. The, a common thing I hear is that, that, that um, you know, uh, the, the practice thought it was this date and the locum thought it was this date. It was never written down. It was always sort of taken as a, you know, the second Tuesday in in yes. uh, January. Um, and so making sure, and you can, you or know, at it least doesn't an have email, to be. Listen it, Mark. Exactly. As long as it's in writing. Record. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. As long as there's a referable record, um, that's a critical thing. Um, Excellent. And I, and I think, uh, what, what, yes, my next one, I think, I don't even know which number I'm up to, Brendan. I think I'm up six, to six. Yep. Number six is resources. I ha I have to, this is a, um, they, don't, they don't sponsor us. I've been a member for, for I think, coming up to more than 22 years, I think I've been a member of VIN, the Veterinary Information Network. And, geez, Brendan, um, the locums that I've done, um, I reckon, because you did a lot of yours before you became a VIN member, and I think that pre uh, internet pre-networked um, where you just had a couple of books and uh, and you were just chucked into a practice on your own, that would have been orders of magnitude more difficult. Whereas these days, I think everyone should remember they're never alone. And you know I've called you about cases uh, when I've been locoming and, and just bounced ideas off you. And, um, and I think that's a critical thing. You don't have to do this all on your own. Um, and whether it's uh, the resources of VIN or uh, your network of colleagues, just remember that you are, you're not doing it all on your own. Have some resources and use them. Fantastic. I can't add anything more to that one, Matt. Number five. <laughs> Number five in our big countdown is make sure that if there's any equipment that you might feel specifically comfortable with, and that might be your own stethoscope. I know Brendan has, uh, wow, whiz-bang flash ultrasound machine, um, one of those uh, portable jobbies. And, um, geez, if you're comfortable with that and your diagnostic process depends on some bit of equipment like that, um, I find magnifying glasses really help me out significantly. Um, Bring those along. Don't count on the practice to have them and then struggle while you're there. Make a short list of the equipment that you want. Pack it in a nice stylish little case. Take it with you so you're not caught with the equipment yes. that you might depend on not being there. Yes. And you feel much more comfortable then, don't you, if you have your own? I mean, obviously, most people take have often will take their own stethoscope around. Um but all that other gear and, yeah, if you've got a particular little 
needle driver or something like that, um, optical loops, um, surgical loops, those sorts of things um, that just makes you that bit more comfortable. Excellent idea, Mark. The next one is financials, Brendan. As veterinarians, whether we're employees or employers, we have a tendency to just let the money take care of itself and not pay attention. Um, we have to. In this circumstance, as a locum, you have to uh, be absolutely clear with the rate that you expect to be paid, the way you expect to be paid, whether you expect to be paid um, as a... As a um, uh, uh, um, as an employee, as a casual employee, or whether you're going to be um, self-employed and uh, on a contract, just make that stuff abundantly clear, communicate it really well, um, and have the numbers in that email we were talking about before. Just make sure those numbers are all recorded and that there's clear agreement about them. Um, make sure that you pay attention to how you... There's nothing worse than finding out that um, there's been some confusion, your tax hasn't been paid, and then you've got to go and pay it as a separate thing. Make sure you speak to your accountant and get these uh, um, these arrangements, the best one for you, for your superannuation, for your tax, all sorted before you go and do the job. Um, and um, also make sure your accountant sorts out what you can claim. Maybe there's some travel or um, whatever that, uh, the equipment that we just talked about, you're taking those things, um, uh, may well be business expenses that you can claim. So um, uh, having a talk to your accountant and making sure all those financial things are set up Follow-up, Brendan, the financial follow-up, making sure um, that you check that you actually have been paid and don't just shoot off on a holiday and, and then two or three months later find that you... Um, that uh, you know a number was wrong in the BSB and, and the money wasn't transferred or whatever. So pay attention to the financials and make sure that you're all happy with that as soon as possible uh, uh, before, during and after your locum. Are you still with me, Brendan? Have you gone to your coffee? No, I'm back. Yes, I had <laughs> it on mute and I was talking away as usual. No, so great point and 99% of the time it does work out and there's no hassles with that and it's pretty straightforward. And Everyone's intention all, is for it to work yes, out. Yes, yes. So, so, you know, I wouldn't panic too much about that, but, yes, you do need to, to, to make sure that it is occurring. And, and related to that, Mark, is the financials as far as the practice going. And my tip there is regarding charging um, oh, yes. in the practice, and I don't know whether you had this on the list. And that the tip there would be, Try and when you're, especially if you're only doing a locum for somewhere you've never been before and you're only there for a day or a week, ask a member of staff. Typically, it's one of the nurses that will follow you around and help you in the consult room, etc. But get them to charge out the client um, for for the for the, um, what you've been doing, because it varies widely, doesn't it? As far as how much is charged and and what you add on to it, there might be an additional charge for instance for doing a, a fluorescein eye stain examination in a lot of practice and, and the next practice doesn't charge for that at all and it's sort of factored in with with general sort of consult fees etc so and the amount of time it sucks out of your day mark oh. and you certainly know this recently you had to do a couple of locums or so and, and you end up 
spending you know uh, most of the time sat at the desk there rather than doing the vet work because you're you're trying to grapple with the software program and you're trying to grapple with how much do I charge for that what do I add on the invoice and what don't I add on and that's where having somebody within the practice to take that burden off you um, makes a huge difference it decreases the stress on you as the locum, but it also decreases the stress on the practice and the problems associated with having a locum if it's consistent. So if and they get you know, and if, they get more, yeah, you know, yeah, you're charging out properly and charging out yeah, more. Um, so yeah, exactly, your locum is covered very well. So yeah, um, what are we down to, Mark? Number three, number three, three two, one. What about two? Number three is a, is, a, is a quick little reminder that um, along with the financials, there is some um, paperwork, other paperwork that you need to make sure is all in order. The first one um, is just to double check your registration. Now, my don't hold this as fact, and obviously I'm only talking about Australia, and check with the board in the state that you're going to work in. My understanding at the moment is that there is a mutual recognition across all but two jurisdictions currently, and they are in the process of setting that up, West Australia and I think the Northern Territory's just passed it. But you need to check the the current information on the veterinary board's site in the state that you're going to work. And there are even still, even if your, rec- your registration is recognised, you might still need to notify the board in that state that you're going to work there. You might not need to do anything more, but making sure your registration is all on the you know, down low, all good. Um, that's going to make sure that uh, there's no problem there. And along with that, um, some boards in Australia require professional indemnity insurance. Um, other boards don't, but uh, making sure whatever insurance you feel is appropriate, um, whether that's, pro- you make sure you've got uh, workers' compensation, medical insurance, but also uh, consider professional indemnity. Um, the, the situations when you're working as a locum might I don't, the evidence I've seen doesn't seem to suggest that you are any more likely to need it, but just anecdotally in my experience, uh, you, you feel a bit more disoriented and I suspect, you, you know, cases might uh, not go the way they normally do, clients might not feel you've done the right thing and that insurance could be really important, so make sure that's all good. Yes, dot what the I's, cross the T's. We're up to number two, Mark, we're up to number two, I think. Have you got two left? I I think I have got two left. (laughs) Um, And this one's a bit of a, uh, I suppose, a a, um, a callback. Um, uh, In terms of setting the limits we're talking about, making sure you look after your own time, I'm not so good at this, but um, that work-life balance is greatly enhanced if you schedule really well. And probably one of the most common complaints I hear about locums by people who own practices is oh, someone had to back out Koi because they double booked uh, they booked me with someone they booked the same time I wanted them with someone else so as a locum if you can make sure that you just keep very very strict schedules you might keep an accurate record of when you're going to work for whom and that feeds back into setting limits and uh, and the um, the written notes the emails we were talking about before that just makes things so much easier so scheduling appointments scheduling locum times that's the uh my number two tip excellent schedule 
schedule schedule what's number one mark what is number one well number one is a bit of a, a all-encompassing one it has to do with just be conscious of communication communication frequently and it uh, over every major issue that's just forestalls any problem communication with the staff when you get there as you said before talking to them and getting them to charge consistently um, understanding the recall the revisit the progress exams uh, progress examination schedule for that practice um, all those things if you communicate really well um, then it's likely to limit the chance of any problem with the clients. Um, and of course, all that stuff we were talking about, the rates, the, the, the times, the scheduling, that all comes down to communication and, and frequent and regular communication um, will prevent a whole lot of concerns that uh, practice might have with the way that locums are working. working. And it's no big surprise, Brendan, you and I have talked about it in almost every other aspect of veterinary practice, communication lessens the risks and makes things better. So it's no surprise that that's my number one tip for veterinary locums. Well said, Mark. Now that we've gone through that, Mark, we need to just chat a little bit about locum work as well before we <laughs> head out of here. And that is that yeah, don't be afraid of doing locum work. And I think it's a fantastic way to see the world not just the local area and it's amazing how much you will get supported and get paid um and, and um, depending on the area of the world that you're working from for a start for instance when i did the working holiday in the united kingdom mark um, i was paid extremely well i had a whole house that a four-bedroom house that they gave me to live in for free. I had a car for free and the clinic, the main clinic I worked at also had a a, a fuel pump, a bowser um, at, the, at the clinic as well. So um, it was fantastic. So I saved a lot of money and the only costs were, you know, going down the pub for, for dinner and lunch <laughs> afterwards. So, um, and I got to see um, a fair region of an area that I would have never seen because I was just working in a little local district and got to know all the locals. Um, so that's um, one thing about it. Um, second one is you get a good feel and and you see the the variety of vet clinics around there and the way people practice. And that's a good thing because everybody is different and we have all have our own methods of and our own style of practice and our old own flavor of practicing and you'll get some fantastic ideas and, and tips and treatment tips and and equipment tips equipment and tips and, yeah, yeah so all true. it opens your little... eyes to a whole spectrum of things and and i love the conferences we go to and i love the you know we try to have a bit of a talk about the equipment that we use um but um but yeah just seeing it in the practice setting, seeing how it's used and, and how that particular practice turns, leverages it for the better health of the animals and ease of practice. It's eye-opening, Brendan, and I agree with you. People should embrace that part of, of uh, you know, if you choose to locum as your um, mode of uh, veterinary employment, um, you should embrace those exciting things and, and look at the different perspective. And, and you are afforded a special... A window on the the life of each practice that you go to and it's something to be cherished yep i agree and sure it's like 
clinical practice generally, it's not for everyone and you may find that you don't like locum work um, or it may be the opposite. And there certainly are people who make a career out of being a veterinary locum and, the, and they love it and they, they enjoy it and they they have it all sorted and they have lots of very flexible with their times because they can say, okay, I'm going to take a month off in in September. So they take the month off because they're their own boss still, um, even though they're working as a locum and they enjoy the fact they can wander into the clinics. They don't have all the overheads and, and hassles of, of, of being a practice owner. Um, and they um, get the best of both worlds, you know, and they have other people who absolutely hate it and they unfortunately may see an occasional clinic or, or be exposed to a clinic where the, perhaps the medicine and all the surgery is not up to scratch mark. So, um, and they may get a bit depressed and, and leave the pr- profession. But I think that's a real exception, um, to be honest, especially these days. So, yeah, get out there do a locum or two, um, enjoy it, and, and don't be afraid of, you know, depending on the legislation and the registration aspects, um, you may be able to work internationally as well, and it is a fantastic way to have a working holiday, isn't it? Entirely agree. I'm going I'm to go and have a holiday right now. <laughs> and I think with that, we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.